Thanks for listening to the Mercy Church Podcast. If you're in the area, we want to invite you to join us the last weekend in March as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday services will be at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for a time of worship, a message, and baptisms. Bring your friends, your family, and if you feel so led, invite your coworker, cashier, or barista to join you. Services will be held at regular service times at all campuses. To learn more, visit mercycharlotte.com slash events. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com slash events. Morning. Uh, good morning to those at our Providence Road campus and those watching online that's going to be listening later on um, in this uh, podcast. Uh, for those that don't know me, my name is Pastor Richard. I am one of the elders here um, at Mercy. If you are new here, uh, we are glad that you're with us. In fact, we, we have something for you right after the service. You go to our next uh, step area at both campuses. But, but before we dive in, um, I just want to pray with us. Pray, cool? Cool, cool, awesome. Uh, Lord, Lord, I need you in this moment where we need you in this moment each time to where your word is open. It is a matter of life and death. So Lord, help us not to just to see this as just a typical Sunday. But Lord, there is no ordinary Sunday. Lord, you resurrected from the grave, and that means something. So help us to, as we approach your word this morning, that our hearts will be open to what you have for us, that, that, that our hearts will be turned away from our desires and our wishes to your desires and your wishes. Lord, we, we need you. So Lord, I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart will be pleasing in your sight. Lord, our God, our Redeemer, to whom we trust. Everybody agree with that says? Amen, amen. amen. Y'all, so we are still inside um, the book of John. Last week, what, what we learned is that uh, Nicodemus and Jesus had an interaction, and, and, and Nicodemus and Jesus, uh, Nicodemus walked away from Jesus pondering the question, how shall one be born again? And so we are inside, so, so um, we're inside John 3, 22 through 30, and we're going to see for the third time that John is telling his disciples that he is not Jesus. In chapter 1, he tells them that, that he came as a witness and a testimony to testify about the light. He said that he came to baptize them with repentance. Inside chapter 2, he, he tells them that, that, that he came as the forerunner to proclaim who Jesus is, to set their path straight. Then we see here in chapter 3, he says that, that he came uh, and he told them that he was not the Christ. He came, again, to prepare them for Jesus. And so I just can just think about this moment where John is standing before his uh, disciples and telling them um, after three times, he said, hey man, I've told you already that I am not Jesus. I remember growing up back in uh, West Texas, for those from West Texas, stand up. Nobody, you guys ain't worthy. Um, <laughs> But, but I, I remember growing, growing up, and, and my mama used to, used to tell us, tell us, like, hey, boy, I need you to go do this, right? And so after she said that for the third time, she put her hands on her, on her hip and said, boy, 
I told you for the third time. And if I did not go do it, the wrath of Cheryl Mars was coming for you, boy. And, and, and so, so I, I can just imagine this moment to where John the Baptist is speaking to his disciples and telling them, I've already told you for the third time that I am not Jesus. So y'all, this moment, I can imagine, is serious. And it means something for him to keep telling them over and over again that he is not the Messiah. So John's disciples, they knew what he was saying, right? They, that they had an understanding of what he was saying, but in their souls, in their hearts, they could not grapple with the reality of what he was saying because they were thinking, how can someone as great as this guy right here how can, how can someone who, who we had 400 years of hearing nothing from God and then came this man baptizing and just blowing our minds, how can he say this? How can he push away this fame? You see, John tells him in a short amount of words, the reason why he was able to do this is because he told them, they say, I don't live by the applause of people. Right? He, see, he, says, he says, my joys and my difficulties, my circumstances, those things are light in comparison of knowing Christ and making him known. John's records, John's accomplishments are meaningless if he does not fulfill the, God, the plan that God has designed for him. So, so that is what we're going to see t- today. We're going to see today from, the God, from John the Baptist, and, and this is the title of our sermon, to make much of Christ, we must first recognize God's role. You must know your role, and to do that, to fight for intimacy, you must fight for intimacy and to walk humbly with him. I want to say it again. To make much of Christ, we must recognize God's role, know our role, and fight for intimacy to walk humbly humbly with him. And so as we go through this text today, um, this sentence is actually going to be our four points. Recognize God's role. Two, know your role. Three, fight for intimacy. And four, walk humbly. All right? And so again, as, as I reiterate, we just left off with this conversation with Nicodemus, right? He says, you must be born again. And so this was mind-blowing for Nicodemus. Nicodemus, he knew the Bible. He knew the scriptures, but he did not know what it meant when Jesus told him to be, be born again. And so John picks up with the same idea in our scriptures. So let's look at verse 22. It says, after this, Jesus and his disciples went to the, to the Judean countryside where he spent time with them and baptized. John was also baptizing in Anum near, near Salem because there was plenty of water there. People were coming and being baptized since John had yet been thrown into prison. So what we can see from this text is first is that Jesus is near the Judean countryside and John is near this area called Salem. 
people were both coming to both Jesus and John um, the Baptist. And then there's this, this interaction that happened with John and his disciples. But before we get there, I need, to, need us to, to examine three, three points, three points from this interaction here. First, if you notice, it says that Jesus was baptizing. That was not entirely true. The Bible is not contradicting each other. It's just that it was an observation from those looking in. According to John uh, chapter 4, verse 2, it says Jesus was actually overseeing the baptism. He was not baptizing. And so, but as he was overseeing this this baptism, it's very, very important for us to, to grasp this. This was not a Christian baptism. Y'all probably looking like, what in the world are you talking about? I'm going to say it again. This was not a Christian baptism. This was rather a kingdom baptism. And the reason why this was a kingdom baptism is because the people of Israel needed to hear this message, this message that they were dead in their sins and that they have rejected God. And this baptism was a baptism to invite them into the new covenant, this new kingdom work, this new Life. We're going to get back to that here in a bit. But also, as you look at verse 24, the writers of, of the New, New Testament, if you look at Matthew, Mark, and, and Luke, they start, th- start Jesus' ministry with um, him starting in Galilee, not in Judea. Let, let's look at it. Mark 1, uh, 14. It says, after John was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. So uh, as you look at all of the other, um, other three Gospels, which, which we will call the, the synoptic Gospels, it very rarely mentions anything in detail about John the Baptist other than that he was baptizing. But inside this letter here, we get more of a fuller story about John the Baptist. And so what John, the writer of this book, is trying to get us to see is the spiritual transition from, Jesus, from John to Jesus. He, he's trying to get us to, to see the old covenant and the new covenant colliding. Israel, who rejected God's people, God needed to first go to them first and then go to the Gentiles. So we're seeing this reality come to play. John's role is to prepare God's people, particularly Israel, for the way of the Lord. Then in verse 23, you, you notice that it mentions that there's this big body of water called Anon, right? Um, this, this body of water is not exactly known, but the importance that we need to see here is from Salaam to Anon is that John is moving from south to north, leaving Jesus to baptize in the more desirable area. So what we can gather from this observation is that John is positioning his life to slowly fade out of the picture. John is preparing the way for Jesus. But in order for him to do that, he must fade to the background, and Jesus must be the star. Verse 25. Then a dispute arose between John's disciples and the Jew about um, purification. 
So they came to John and told him, Rabbi, the one you testified about who was with you across the Jordan is baptizing and everyone is going to him. And so right here we see this, this little um, um, debate, right? Uh, this, this debate about uh, between John and his, uh, John's disciples and the, the Jew. They represent Israel as a whole. And, and they were having this discussion about uh, pur- pur- purification, but this discussion backfired on them. You see, as they were literally talking about how to get cleansed, they missed living water standing in front of them. Did, did, did y'all see this? Jesus was literally right in, right in front of them, and they missed him. They missed them. It wasn't about their, their, they're about their, their religious activity, and they were about their theology. They were about trying to get the gospel right, but they missed to see the gospel right in front of them. There's irony here. This little competition was not about purification in their souls. It was about prominence. And so John the Baptist sees straight through their soul, and he ain't playing no games with them. So he responds in verse 27. It says, John responded, no one can receive anything unless it's been given to him from heaven. He says, you yourself can testify that, that I said that I am not the Messiah, but I have been sent ahead of him. And so we see that, that John is setting the facts real, real straight. He doesn't even, even talk about purification because he talks about what he came to do. He says, I am not the Messiah, right? He, sees, he says, but I want to talk to tell you a little bit about, about what God came to do through me. And he says in verse 27, he says, no one can receive anything unless it's been given to him from Heaven. He tells them that, that, that God, the, the, the creator, the sustainer, the giver of all things, gives gifts, abilities, dominion, and authority accordingly for our joy and his good. These gifts that God gives. I can just imagine him talking to his disciples. These gifts that God gives are meant to, meant to make much of himself. They are meant to flow through us and back up to him. Which brings me to my first point, to make much of Christ in this life, in the life to come, you must recognize God's role. And that's what John told his disciples. You guys thought this was about me and, 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 you know, these purification laws, but this is about God. This is about his sovereign hand in this universe. God's role in this universe is to make much of himself. That is the reason why he created the universe, was that he created the world to make much of himself. It is to showcase his glory. And God then chooses to use us by giving us influence, giving us dominion, and by giving us gifts to be used for his purposes and his glory. But y'all, as I say that, the problem with many of us in our souls is that we think that the things that God has given us is only meant for our purposes and our glory. Right? Thus, as we look at our gifts, our abilities, our dominion, our circumstances, there, there's two things that happens that either the shows about what you believe about the statement that, that God is in control, that it is God's role. It either shows 
the shallowness of your relationship with him or it shows the depth of you knowing God. So as you look at God in his sovereign hand, which one is it? Do you pout when things don't go as things planned? Do you, do you accuse him of not doing what he said that he was going to do? Or do you even think about him at, at all? All of those are symptoms and treasons of us not seeing God as God. He's sovereign. He's in control. He rules the world. You see, um, in order to make much of Christ, we need to see that he rules everything. If not, we begin to doubt God. And when we begin to doubt God, we, we begin to have a deep discontentment towards his sovereignty. And what happens is that we move from unbelief to unfaithfulness to idolatry. And the idolatry is, is that you have stood before God in declaring that you are God. That was Adam and Eve's issue, which is the issue for John's disciples, and which is many of our issues, is that the reason why we cannot see God's hand in our life because you have deemed yourself to be God. You control everything. You control your finances. You control your gifts. You can control everything, and there's very little thinking about God's glory about his dominion, about his rule, about his love to be reigned over all of humanity. You see, if we are not careful, church, we will make the things that God has given us, what we see here, our identity. And when that happens, when your gifts whenever your talents, whenever your dominion, whenever your circumstances become your identity, both God and people will either be tools and barriers for your kingdom. You'll start treating people as just, as just an, an advancement for you to move up the ladder, for, for, for you to get what you want. You will start seeing God as a spiritual genie, not as a sovereign Lord. Church, God is in control. But when we see that God is in control, we can love him as he should be loved. Church, I need us to, to grasp this. God is not opposed to you using your gifts. He wants you to use those gifts, but it has to be for his good and his glory. And as you discover God, here's the, here's the thing. We're all, we're all in this, this self-help, this let me go discover myself and let me, let me do, my, do my thing. Let me speak my truth. But the truth is, is that God is in, in control. And when you discover God, you actually discover more of yourself. There's no way other around because if we believe that God is the supreme creator who, who made all things, who hold all things accordingly, then we will see that as we discover him, we discover more of ourselves. Y'all, those two realities do not compete with one another. As we seek God, we get to know ourselves. So as you operate in your role and give things, y'all, these things will bring glory to God. But we got to keep moving Let's look at verse 28. Let's see how this does this. Verse 28, it says, You yourself can't testify that I said that I am not the Messiah, but I've been sent ahead of him. Who has the bride is the groom, but the groom's 
But the groom's friend who stands by and listens for him rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. So John the Baptist continues to explain to his disciples again that he is not the Messiah. And he does is by, by presenting to them this marriage metaphor about his role in the kingdom. John says, he says, hey, I am not the groom, but I am the best man, right? He says, he says, I like my role is not is not to stand in his spot. My role is to get this joker ready to be to, to get married, right? But before we explain this a little bit more, explain that this analogy, I need us to see this. We're gonna take a little little diversion real real quick. What we see here about the bride and the groom, about this marriage metaphor, y'all, this is not talking about the church right now. John isn't, isn't affirming, nor is he de- denying the church here. Remember, this, this book, as we learned at the very, very beginning, this book is very, very Jewish, right? And, and so we're, in the, we're only in chapter 3, and, and so what, what the gospel narrative is doing is that, that God is taking the, taking the gospel first to Israel. And so he is speaking directly to a redeemed Israel here. Who, as we know the story of God, God created humanity to live in his glory and his goodness. But humanity decided to reject that glory by wanting to be God. And so God decided to choose a special people called Israel and, 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 and work through them so he can showcase his glory to all of the nations. But we know that Israel decided to, to reject that reality and they did not want him to be their God. And so as every time that God moved towards them, they moved away from him. And so eventually God said, you know what? You're going to reject me? I'm going to make another way. And so here, God is making another way. After thousands of years of rejection, God made a provision by first sending John the Baptist to speak the message of the gospel to Israel. You are dead in your sins. You are dead in your, your trespasses. In order to be invited back in fellowship with me, as, as you had in the garden, you got to receive Jesus. That was the message that he was speaking to Nicodemus. You must be born again. And so then this marriage analogy will make sense. Let's look at it inside the Old Testament. We're going to look at two verses to see that, that, that they will see how this is connecting dots for them. Um, Isaiah 54.5, it says, Indeed, your husband is your maker talking about the Father. His name is the Lord of armies. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, talking about Jesus. He called the God of the whole earth. Hosea 2, 19 through 20, it says, I will take you to be my wife forever. I will take you to be my wife in righteousness, in justice, love, and compassion. I will take you to be my wife in faithfulness, and you will know the Lord. Y'all, There's a lot of complexity here in the Old Testament between God and Israel. But what we need to see here about John's role, particularly as we zoom back in, we need to see about John's role that his role was unique and specific. It was unique because he went particularly to Israel. It was was specific because he needed to marry the groom to the bride. Which brings me to my next point. To make much of Christ in this life, in the life to come. Not only do you need to recognize God's role in your life, but you need to know your role in your life. 
You, you see, as we look at this marriage um, ceremony, um, John is talking about a, where, a marriage ceremony that's different from our understanding of this marriage ceremony. We think marriage ceremony to where, you know, you know, you know the bride is getting all the decorations ready, where her and her mom and her family, they're all doing all, all these things. And, and so then, then our marriage ceremony, you, you got, got the groom waiting and for the bride to walk down and everybody's excited. And then you got a officiant. That is not their interpretation of marriage, of the ceremony. In fact, it's quite the, the complete opposite. John is saying inside the, inside the Jewish traditions, it is the groom who walks down the aisle. It, it, it is the groom walking down the aisle and as, as, the, as the bride is standing on stage to be, at, um, be on stage to receive the groom. And the bride has been prepping and preparing to receive the groom. And John says that he's the best man. A best man in that day and age not, um, did all of the wedding pre- preparations. He, he set, out, set up all the designs. He got everything ready for the bride and the groom to be married to one another. But, th- but not only that, he was also the wedding officiant. So John is saying, my role is to be the best man I am preparing the way, but not only that, I am uniting the bride and the groom together. That is my role. So I, I can imagine at the ceremony, after, after the groom and bride unites, those who've been around weddings, you see that the best man and the officiant, they walk off to, to the side because now what's important is the bride and the groom are celebrating together. They are united. They are one. So John is telling his disciples, my, my job is to unite. But then after I unite God to his people, I'm going to slowly fade out the picture because my job is done. You see, John's role and God's role do not compete with one another, but they work in harmony. God gets the glory whenever we play our part inside of his role that he has designed for us. So how about you? Do you know your role in the kingdom of God? Do you know that God has created you uniquely with special abilities only you can do? Do you know that? Do you know that you're special? Do you know that you're loved? Do you, do you know that God created you for a purpose? Do you know that? Or are you like John's disciples? You're so busy gazing around, seeing what everybody else is doing, judging yourself against others that you miss out on grace. You miss the living water standing in front of you and giving you identity, giving you worth, um, giving you all that you need. Are you missing it? To help us out, um, I decided, those who know me, I'm, I'm a teacher at, at heart. I did college ministry for about nine years, and so I like acronyms. And so, so I, I created this acronym for us to help you to dis- discern your role in God's, kingdom, uh, God's kingdom. I call it SPOT, helping you spot your role in God's kingdom. And so as you look at the acronym, the S stands for spiritual gifts. As you examine the text in the scriptures, 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, Ephesians 4. What are your spiritual gifts that God has given you to 
be used for his glory in his kingdom. But then P stands for passion. What has God given you a heart for and to whom he has given you a heart for? Who are the people, the, the places and spaces God has given you a passion for? And O is opportunities. Y'all, this is very, very important here. We cannot make up opportunities on our own. It has to be spirit-led. So what are those opportunities that God has placed before you, right? So some of us in this room, we, we may be a CEO. Some of us in this room, we may be a stay-at-home mom. Or some of us in this room, we may be a college student. It all depends. What is, has God placed in front of you? And how are you being led by the Spirit and in walking into that? Then lastly is talents. Spiritual gifts are different from talents. Talents are just naturally given by God's gifts, are only given by, by the Holy Spirit, those who've been endowed by him. Talents, what talents do you have to give that give you joy, that blesses others? So, so that, that's an acronym for us to consider. How do you spot your role in God's kingdom? And then as you, as you examine that, you need to be asking this question, how do I glorify God and others within my role? Let me say that again. I messed it up. How do I glorify God and serve others within my role? How, how do you do that? Have you thought about that? How do you glorify God? How do you serve others? Y'all, there's this quote by uh, Pablo Picasso. He says it this way. He says, the meaning of life is to find your gift, but the purpose of life is to give it away. So how are you giving yourself away to the glory of God and for the flourishing of humanity? You know, I, like this, I sit with a lot of y'all in this room, whether over coffee or my house, your house, and I, and I know that God is using a lot of us in this room, and, and, and you know your role. And as your pastor, I want just to encourage you to keep grinding. Keep being faithful. Keep doing what he has called you to do. But I want to challenge you. Be watchful of your soul. Because our doing becomes our, because the doing can, can quickly become our identity. And then whenever things don't go our way, we, we end up start getting bitter at God and God's people because we, are, we have replaced God for our doing. So be watchful. But then there's other, then there's other of us inside the, the room. You, you know the assignment that God has given you, but you don't like it. Because, because the problem is, is that, is that and, and as, as I have in my own soul, is that you are not being glorified in it. And as we learned a few weeks ago from Pastor Joseph, we don't want the role God has given us because we aren't the ones shining. So my challenge for you is for you to consider what it look like for you to operate in the role God has given you, even though it's not sexy. <laughs> y'all, when we operate inside that type of thinking, y'all, we operate in that, you know, you wagging your finger at God what actually happens is that you diminish God's hand in your life. Because your role isn't big, because it isn't grand, grandiose, you start to start to believe that you are insignificant. You start to compare yourself to others and start thinking that your life has no meaning. But that is far from the truth. You matter to God. Your role 
matters to God. He loves you. He wants you to have joy in Him according to His purposes. You know, our role is meant to help us to enjoy Jesus, not to take away from him. But it requires God to get the glory. So my question for you, as you are examining your role in God's kingdom, are you enjoying Jesus in the process or are you resenting him? But we got to keep moving. Whenever we enjoy Jesus in our role, we can join John the Baptist, what he says in verse 29 and 30. It says, he who has the bride is the groom. But the groom friend who stands by and listens for him rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. So this joy of mine is complete. He must increase and I must decrease. So here John is not talking about the self-loathing of him walking in, in humility, but rather he's saying that, that he, he, he has found a greater satisfaction in life beyond the worldly applause of man, and that is intimacy with Jesus. So not only did John the Baptist recognize God's role, not only did he recognize his role, but he also understood to make much of Christ in this life and the life to come, you need to fight for intimacy. It's his intimacy with Jesus, right? And so as you look at verse 29, let's look at it. It says, it says these, these two words here. It says that John stands and listens to the groom's voice. The, the importance here is, is to notice the, the, the ordering of these words. He says that, that it says that he stands before he listens. Standing signifies being attentive, right? And so, uh, so as we're standing off in here at the church or out in the lobby, whenever someone is talking to you, you're not running, you're not jogging, you're not walking, but you're standing because you're trying to be solely intent on what that person is saying. And so what John the Baptist is saying, the reason why he's able to rejoice in his role and in God's role, because he is stopping to hear Jesus' voice. He loved his voice. And y'all, and that is intimacy with God. Y'all, intimacy with Jesus is something precious. It it means to, to cherish him as a person. As, a, as, an, as an individual, it, it means to delight in his love, to, to delight in his care and his protection over you. It means talking to him, but not only talking to Jesus, but also listening to Jesus. Listening to his voice. Y'all, and I know that many of us in this room, we love God. But we struggle to know what he wants from us and how he loves us. Because we're so moving so fast that we can't hear Jesus. So I want to challenge you. Slow it down. Slow it down. Because God wants to talk with you. He loves you. And as you look upon the gospel message, God is not mad at you. He took out his wrath on Jesus. And so for those that are in Christ, you, are, you now have all of the affections of God because of Christ's death and resurrection. So God wants to meet with you. He wants to talk with you. He wants to let you know how he has formed you, 
how he has designed you, how he has made you, how he has created you. He wants you to know that you don't need to earn anything from him. He wants you to, to know that, that, that he is fully satisfied with you because of his son. He wants you to know that he is your God. He's your maker. He is your daddy. So that's what we see with John the Baptist here as he walked in intimacy with Jesus. He was confident to execute his role because he knew Jesus' wishes and desires for his life. But also, his desires were in check. This happens when we meet with Jesus. Not only do we hear God's love, but we also hear God's rebuke, his gentle rebuke. Meeting with God, it takes honesty. It takes humility. It takes time. It's, it takes asking the hard questions. It is, taking, it is discerning the lesser loves in your life that you have made more important than him. It takes a heart to be repented and attentive. You see, John the Baptist prioritized intimacy with Jesus, and that overflowed in his life. Thus, he was able to say in verse 29 and 30, he says, So this joy of mine is complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. As the best man, John the Baptist stepped away from his job. He stepped away because he knew God's role. He knew his role. It brought him much joy and intimacy to walk in his role. And he was, he was humbly able to let the bride and the groom have the attention. Which brings me to my last point. To make much of Christ in this life, in the life to come, we need to not only know God's role, not only know our role, not only do we need to fight for intimacy, but we need to walk humbly with God. The humility that John the Baptist displayed here, as he says, as, as, as he decreases and that Jesus increased, is, is, is a humility that could not be produced within himself. I once heard a pastor say that, that humility is not the product of direct cultivation, but rather it is the byproduct. This means the more that we try to be humble, the less humble we are. Because true humility is not based upon an activity, but it's based upon a person. And that's Jesus. If you want to be humble, look to Jesus. As, as, as Robert McShane has famously, famously said, for every time that you look at, at yourself, take 10 looks to Christ. Because when we look at Jesus, he shows us and reveals to us our brokenness. He, he tells us that we cannot produce a righteousness upon our own. God defines what's broken and what's put together. And that definition was Jesus Christ. He took upon your brokenness. Brokenness means that, 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 that you needed to be fixed, and what needed to be fixed was your heart. Your heart could not love God. So God, in his grace and mercy, sent Jesus to repair your heart, so therefore you can take ten looks at him. Ten looks. You take one look at yourself. 
Humility that we need to walk in this life invites us to take a full stock of our sin, a full stock of our brokenness, but it invites us to throw ourselves into the hands of God, into the mercies of Christ. So when we see Christ and as we stand and listen, the more that we can join John the Baptist in saying, he must increase and I must decrease. And when that happens, y'all, your affections will change. When you meet with Jesus, you start looking at sin differently. You start looking at this world differently. You start even looking at yourself differently. You start telling yourself that you have been made new. You have been redeemed. You have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. You start telling yourself you have been crucified with Christ. In the life that you live, you live accordingly to him. You start telling yourself you are dead in your, your sins and trespasses, but God in his grace and mercy. Christ changes our affections. You see, as we look at Jesus, he took upon many roles that we could never take on. Jesus came as our redeemer and savior. As savior, Jesus came to rescue us and in, to his grace because we could not take the eternal punishment that was, that was on our behalf. We could not exonerate that. And so Jesus became the punishment for us. He took upon our sins. He went to, to the grave. He resurrected from the grave and he stood before God, the judge, and says, not guilty. Look at my hands. Look at my feet. Look what I've done. These people aren't guilty. So we can stand with God for him, making much of him. But, but not only that, Jesus became our redeemer. He exchanged your record of wrong for his record of good. And so whatever you walk in this life and the life to come, that you will, you will be able to, to, to say, God, I am cleansed because I've been cleansed by the blood of Jesus In his death and resurrection, Jesus took the most humiliating expression that we could take in life, and that is death hanging upon the cross, laid out, just blood blood, um, hanging out of him to where there was no more. And he stood, he looked at the Father, he says, Father, forgive these people for they know not what they did. He was humiliated so you can be resurrected, so you can walk in newness of life. Jesus took a role that you could never take, but he called you into a role for his glory and for his good. So so as we come to a close, as I was was preparing this sermon, um, the Lord woke me up last week at 4 a.m. in the morning, and I was praying to the Lord to help this sermon like work in my soul because I believe that a pastor must first live a, a sermon before he preaches a sermon. And, and then God woke me up and told me that my loves were out of order. I oversee the life I have prioritized, my role as pastor, then my responsibilities as a husband and a father and a brother and a son. Then lastly, I made intimacy with Jesus important. The Lord brought me to repentance. So how about you? Where have you allowed the things in your life to become more significant in your soul for Jesus has become less. Church, God has created you for Jesus to become greater, for us to become less. With that, we join me in prayer. 
Lord, we are grateful. Grateful that every time we open your word, you meet us. You, you show us your love for us. You show us that, that, that what we need is you. So Lord, help us to identify your role, to walk in our role, to, to pursue intimacy with you and to walk humbly with you. So Lord, we're grateful that you love us in Christ. In your name we pray, amen.